When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com. Nate Silver on the art and science of prediction. This talk took place on the 30th of April 2013 at the Royal Geographical Society in London. Well, thank you for, uh, for having me here today. Um, so I used to live in London 14 years ago for a time. I went to spend my junior year abroad uh, at LSE. So it's still very much in my DNA. After 14 years, the geogra- geographic memory fades a bit, but it's kind of gradually coming back into place, especially after, after a pint or so, then things seem more in place, given that I was a student at the time. That's how I navigated things. But I want to uh, uh, talk a little bit about, about my book, um, it's a big, kind of long and complicated book, so I'm going to give you the kind of 30-minute uh, version today, simplified a bit. So you should still, you should still buy the book, even though the essence <laughs> will be discussed here in this, in this presentation. Um, but so it's, you hear a lot today, if you buy any business magazine, about this idea of, of big data and the explosion of the amount of information available in the world today. It's very easy to, to quantify this. For example, the number of web pages and the exponential growth since 1990 when the web was, was invented. Um, likewise, if you look at the amount of data in the world, by IBM's estimate, 90% of the data in the world was created in the past two years. Um, most of that are, are kitten videos on, on YouTube and stuff. Um, but that should give you be one tip off and one reason why you should be suspicious, I suppose, is that 90% of the data does not really mean 90% of the, of the useful knowledge. And so, um, so we have, as you'll see, a few, a few problems we have to sort out still. Um, there's also a historical precedent for other periods in time when you had a big kind of paradigm shift in how much information was available. Um, the printing press was invented in about 1440. Uh, before that time, it cost about 15,000 pounds or so to produce a single copy of a book. Um, very cost ineffective to actually transmit new knowledge to the page, to pass down ideas, made it very hard to develop technology over time when if you have an idea, you never bother to write it down or record it. 
Um, but the printing press changed all that very rapidly. Um, books went to costing about 150 pounds or so instead, obviously inflation adjusted. So still kind of a, a luxury item, but, but now all of a sudden people were reading a lot more, a big massive increase in the number of books you had throughout Western Europe. Here's a kind of demonstration of how quickly this technology spread even by modern standards from 1450, where it was only in really central Germany, uh, uh, 50 years later, it was all diffused throughout the continent of Europe. Um, so, so what happened next? Um, you know, I think the free flow of information is, is a good thing, other things being equal in the long run, et cetera, et cetera, with some qualifications. Um, but before the printing press, you had only a few shared great books, the, the Bible, um, the, week, uh, the work of Aristotle, or Plato. Um, so you had kind of a consensus view within society, however right or wrong, based on these great books and the oral community standards that you might have. And all of a sudden, you had competition for ideas instead, where the Protestant Reformation was enabled by the printing press in part. Martin Luther was able to distribute about 200,000 copies of his theses throughout Europe. And when things go on a page, people take them a lot more seriously. Uh, people all of a sudden were, were convinced that they had a unique um, view of, of society, a unique view of God and religion that, uh, that was better than everyone else's. And so you had a lot of conflicts as a result. Um, these are some of the wars that occurred in the first 50 to 100 years after the printing press was uh, unveiled. So all of Europe was a flame in war. It was probably the bloodiest century in, in European history until the, until the 20th century, at least. Um, and again, it would turn out well in the end. Um, eventually, you had the, the, uh, the Industrial Revolution. Um, you had the European Enlightenment, all enabled, obviously, by reading and the spread of knowledge, along with other things. Uh, but there was trouble in the end, which kind of brings us back to, to today. Um, so this is an article written by uh, Chris Anderson, a very smart guy who is uh, the head of Wired magazine. He wrote it in 2008. Um, and his contention is that, is that big data, all this information we have, um, will, will remove the need for the scientific method, will renew, remove the need for, for theory or maybe even critical thinking, that it'll become self-evident when you have more data, kind of correlations rain down from the cloud. You don't have to do very much more. You become all the wiser. Uh, but consider the timing of this piece, written in the summer of 2008, um, at a time when the entire global financial system was melting down. They have, finance is a very data-driven field. Um, the models that the credit rating agencies used to say that crappy pieces of debt were, were AAA, they were driven by, by thousands of records from thousands of mortgages, but they made a few flawed assumptions. For example, assuming that housing prices would continue to go up and up forever, that the risk of one person defaulting on their home was uncorrelated with the next person doing so. Um, and so as a result, you had um, investors investing in a lot of junk and spread contagion throughout the financial system, and, and the whole global economy was brought to, to a halt. Um, and similarly, if you kind of look at the past, uh, past 10 or 12 years, a new millennium, so to speak, as a society, um, every age has, has problems. Uh, and we're not alone, but it seems like we certainly haven't progressed past these, where all these examples uh, where terrorist attacks or, or earthquakes or hurricanes, look, we can't prevent hurricanes or earthquakes, but all of these have involved failures of, of prediction in some ways. Usually they're false negatives, meaning we deem an event to be unlikely and then it occurs. For example, um, some seismologists in Japan had very dubious theories, even though Japan is very active seismologically about why you couldn't have a magnitude 9.0 earthquake there as you actually did in 2011. So the Fukushima 
reactor was meant to a tolerance, was built to a tolerance of an 8.6 instead. Well, that caused uh, a big problem made, obviously, the scope of the disaster all that much worse. Um, but there can be problems with false positive predictions as well. Um, there was a big uh, flu scare in the US a couple of years ago that didn't really come to fruition. People were making extrapolations based on very thin cuts of data and extrapolations, exponential relationships, if you're wrong, you can be, you can be very, very wrong. Um, you know, in fact, in science, more broadly, this is not just a problem of people's intuitions being wrong, but this is a paper by a guy named John P. A. Iodinitis who contended that uh, uh, most published research findings are false. And what he meant by this is that if you tried to duplicate a finding in a prestigious academic journal, tried to replicate it, tried to apply it to make a prediction to give you actionable knowledge, that it would fail more often than not. And there have been ways to test his proposition. One was done by uh, Bear Laboratories a couple of years ago, where they took positive relationships from, from major high prestige medical journals and tried to recreate these experiments and found they couldn't get the same result two thirds of the time. Um, a lot of false positives in the data where people have so many things to look at, um, so many experiments to run, they, there is bias in which ones they report to the journals. Um, and so you have a lot of things that look very convincing on paper, turn out not to be really applicable in the real world. Um, the velocity of information is increasing a lot as well. So just last week, we had uh, the Associated Press's Twitter feed was hacked. It's not quite clear by who, um, but they sent out a tweet um, saying that there were explosions in the, in the White House, that President Obama had been hurt. Um, in the span of mere seconds, the Dow Jones Industrial Average plunged by, by about 1%, which is about uh, 1.5 billion US in, in market capitalization, and then recovered just as fast. Based on this one tweet that was not verified by the BBC or by the New York Times or by Reuters or by anyone else, uh, was quickly retracted by the EAP. But people are reacting so fast to information nowadays that you had a billion and a half dollars change hands on the basis of one errant tweet. Um, this strikes me as a false positive, but also a, a sign that the stakes are very high when it comes to having good ways to interpret information. So here's the kind of big question the book poses. Um, it doesn't have a simple answer, but I'll give you some context on, on three, I think, systemic problems that, that uh, underlie a lot of these different areas I explore in the book, and then, and then three things that can make our approach a little bit better. Um, but let me give you a brief interlude into the 2012 election, although I'm a little bit tired of talking about it. Uh, <clears throat> but this is a map showing the 538 forecast on November 6, 2012, which was election morning. Um, we get a lot of credit for calling all 50 states, right? If you look at this carefully, though, read the fine print, um, everything is really on a probability scale here. So we had Obama, for example, with a 50.1% chance of winning Florida or so basically means the story is it's a coin flip too close to call, but we got credit for basically getting heads instead of tails. So I'll take credit. I'd rather have it that way than the way around. But, uh, but still, it was a good year for, for 538. Um, and really as compared to some of the problems that society faces today or that you see pertinent in, in economics, um, the 538 model is really quite simple. So we're basically just taking an average of polls. We do do a few tweaks. For example, we, we weigh polls more heavily if they've been more accurate in the past. Um, if there are polls that have a persistent partisan bias, Republican leaning or Democratic leaning, we have ways to remove that. But basically, it's just a, a polling average. And then we count to 270, which is ought to be easy to do. That's how many votes, electoral votes, you need to clinch the presidency in the US. And then making some effort to account for the margin 
of error. As you get closer to election day, there are fewer news events that can intervene, so the margin of error is reduced. Um, but this relatively simple method caused an amazing amount of controversy and consternation and attention in the US. So here's a, a humble brag slide uh, <laughs> where it shows the amount of Google search traffic I got and the amount of search traffic for, the, for Vice President Joe Biden. So that spike there is caused by the, the Daily Show. It's not the Colbert bump. It's a Daily Show bump, actually, um, where I briefly overtook him in search traffic. So but people did maintain some perspective here. <laughs> Because as you see, most Americans were rightly concerned with Justin Bieber's whereabouts more than, more than the election. Uh, but you know, why in politics in particular was this relatively simple model so controversial? Well, one problem is that um, kind of as you saw in the early days of the printing press, where people would see a new book and say, this book must be entirely true. Everything else must be entirely false. Uh, people in the US have a lot of choice of how they consume their political news, and they consume it very, very differently. Where Rachel Maddow is a liberal commentator in the United States, um, only 1% of Republicans uh, watch her, or only 1% of her audience, rather, is, is Republican. Um, Sean Hannity is a right-wing commentator. Only 5% of Democrats watch him for some reason. Um, and you get very jaded views. Not all these sources are biased. You can have, you can be a good journalist and be on the left or on the right. We have both those things in the UK, maybe not in the US as much. But, uh, but you also sometimes get a very uh, jaded and cherry-picked view of what the data really says. This is a, a, a conservative-leaning site in the US, a kind of news and gossip site called the, the Drudge Report. Um, I know you guys can't read the fine print, but this is their homepage, kind of their take on the news on election morning, November 6, 2012. So, so by this point, um, you had seen that the election had become tighter after the first debate, but then began to open up again. Um, we had a Hurricane Sandy on the East Coast. Obama's response was viewed favorably by voters. Chris Christie kind of gave him a bear hug. So Obama was ahead and probably, um, probably you know, six out of eight national polls and, and uh, the vast majority, 90% of, of the state-by-state -state polls in the key swing states in the Electoral College. Um, but what Drudge shows you instead so every link in red is a favorable poll or a favorable piece of news for, for Mitt Romney. Um, everything in blue, and there are not very many, is a favorable news, piece of news for Obama instead. So he really is taking, you know, uh, uh, cherry-picking the, the, every good piece of news he can find for, for Romney and ignoring all the good news that he can find for Obama and presenting a very, um, a very inaccurate view of these relatively simple facts. Um, and if you watch the news, then people have all types of hangups that you would resolve just by counting up the polls and putting them in different columns. Um, some news organizations say, well, you know, five polls say this and one poll says this, therefore it's a tie, right? Just the idea of weighing information is, is foreign, I think, to a lot of news departments and certainly to a lot of pundits in, in the US. Um, but as much fun as it is to make fun of people in politics, and we, we should, I think, make fun of them as, as much as possible, um, there are other problems as well um, that can affect people who are aiming to be somewhat more scientific. So one very, very basic concept here is that as you increase the volume of data, um, you can have an exponential increase in complexity, the number of relationships that you're looking at. So if you have uh, five variables here, so you're looking at, uh, at ice cream sales in London and uh, I don't know, and the weather or something else, and you have, you have 10 relationships to test, looking at any combination of two, um, as you double the number of variables, you have actually an exponential increase. You now have four and a half times as many variables to test. And in some contexts, uh, for example, the US Federal Reserve now publishes 
in real time about 61,000 economic statistics. So if you wanted to run relationships between any two of these, you'd have 1.86 billion hypotheses to look at. Um, so is there some actual truth in there? Yeah, sure. More information, other things being equal, big caveat, is good. Um, quantifying things we didn't measure before can be good, but also a lot of it is, is redundant. A lot of the correlations are spurious. So what the red line here represents is a number of true signals. By that, I mean something that aids human decision-making, something that is a real causal relationship that allows us to make a better prediction, better forecast for what our lives might be like in the future. Whereas the black uh, line represents the number of statistical relationships instead, mere patterns or correlations that, that don't necessarily actually give you any workable, actionable, useful knowledge. And so you see that black line is increasing a lot faster than the red line does. So we have a widening gap between what we really know and what we think we know. And being human beings, that's a really dangerous place to be. When we overestimate our capabilities, we can get ourselves into a lot of trouble, as the financial sector has in recent years. Um, part of the issue why is kind of uh, evolutionary, where uh, we have a tendency to, to take random data and perceive a signal there, whether there's really actually one or not. Um, it pays to have these very active pattern recognition skills. If you're a caveman, say, and you perceive um, a rustling in the wind, which could be benign, but maybe it's a, a lion or a hyena instead who wants to attack your family. So you have to make a quick snap, fight or flight decision, use your inferential skills, and, and it's useful to have those and have those pattern recognition capabilities. But we're not used to having millions of bytes of information each day that we process, so we kind of can go, go haywire sometimes. Um, here's a very basic example. It recreates a story from the book, A Random Walk Called Down Wall Street, where uh, the professor in this book at Princeton would have his students flip coins. Um, heads means the stock market had a good day. Tails means it declined. And he would take these randomly generated charts and go show them to technical analysts on Wall Street. And invariably, they'd say, well, this stock is terrible. This stock, oh, you have to buy this one right now based on this candlestick pattern, whatever else, where it's all just random junk. Uh, so I recreate this experiment where, where two of these charts are actually real. Uh, four of them are fake. If you can guess the real two, then you should leave the auditorium right now and go, uh, go work on Wall Street or something. But DNF are, are real, FYI. But they're very hard to, to actually tell these apart. Um, so it might seem as though if we human beings um, have so many biases and if we're so unsophisticated at processing data, we should just kind of turn things over to the computers instead. Um, there's a big problem with this, which is that computer programs are designed by human beings who introduce in, uh, assumptions and, 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 and bugs into the, into the code sometimes. So let, let me give you one uh, story from the, the, the kind of uh, 1997 chess match between Gary Kasparov, the great Russian chess champion, and uh, an IBM supercomputer, Deep Blue. So, um, so I'm not a chess guy myself. I like games like poker where there's some element of, of randomness and bluffing and so forth. Um, but, but if you are a chess player, you might have an opinion on who has a superior position here. Um, so Kasparov is playing the white pieces. Uh, Deep Blue has the black. Um, what's interesting is that both, both players or both entities think they're ahead. Um, where Deep Blue will break the position down into discrete components. So it'll say, well, we can apply a heuristic where we assign a point value to each piece. So I can add up my points. I have 30. Kasparov has, has 29 instead. I'm probably going to win, Deep Blue would think. Um, Kasparov looking at the same position, though, instead, although his calculation speed 
is an order of magnitude or several orders of magnitude, rather less than deep blues. He is much more directed thinking where now these pattern recognition skills help. He's able to see relationships in the data. In particular, he sees that uh, in chess, the objective is actually not to get the most material on the board, but to not be checkmated. And deep blue has left its king largely unprotected, where Kasparov has three pawns that are moving toward the king and they're not defended against at all. He has a, a bishop and a queen that can move diagonally across the board toward the same pressure point. So deep blue, in fact, has managed its strategy very badly, kind of lost sight of the bigger picture in, uh, in bringing all those calculations that it does every second. And in fact, Kasparov would go on to win this match eventually, but not without kind of a final strange little coda to the story, where this is the position later on in the match um, where Deep Blue's position in black has deteriorated, but computers have no pride. You can, it could hope that Kasparov would get tired and, and want to smoke or something and, and make a move out of frustration. Um, and so it kept playing on until finally, um, on the last move of the match, it made this very odd move, moving its rook from the square labeled D5 to D1, um, uh, which made no sense at all to Kasparov. Um, this move accomplishes nothing. It doesn't resolve any of the threats that Deep Blue was under at all. Um, and Deep Blue, as I said, would lose the game. Um, but Kasparov went back and thought about it later, and he said, well, I'm Gary Kasparov. Um, I'm the best chess player in the world, and I can think 15 moves ahead. So if Deep Blue made this move that I don't understand, therefore that demonstrates that Deep Blue has an intelligence beyond mine. It could think 20 moves ahead instead, so to speak. Um, but I actually talked to IBM's programmer, a guy named, or Deep Blue's programmer, a guy named Murray Campbell, who's still at IBM today, and he told me that, that Kasparov's first impression was right. It what looked like a random bug actually was just a random bug. Uh, <laughs> Deep Blue was a very smart program, a very complicated program, though. This was the first match they had played, and so there were a couple things kind of deep in the code that weren't quite up to snuff, and Deep Blue had a fail-safe. If you can't make a move, you time out and forfeit, uh, you resign the match. So it said, if you can't make a legal move, you hit a glitch in the code, then as a default, make a random legal move instead. So that's what it did. It made a random legal chess move that accomplished absolutely nothing, but Kasparov mistook it for a sign of, of deep genius instead. <laughs> so this is a problem I call uh, feature or bug. When you have some insight from the data that maybe goes against your, your common sense, then um, and you should start out being skeptical and suspicious. Of course, sometimes it can be really good. You can have an insight that really is a new revelation, but, but let me give you one more example of where it wasn't. So, um, so I live in, in New York, on uh, roughly on 30th Street and 7th Avenue. I was giving a talk uh, last month at the Guggenheim, which is on um, 89th and, and Madison, or thereabouts. So uh, New York, uh, unlike London, is all a grid, easy to navigate. Um, so from getting from point A to point B shouldn't be that hard. But you should have met my cabbie, uh, <laughs> who decided to take this route instead, where we crisscrossed through Central Park three times, did a loop-de-loop -loop around 72nd Street or so, and got there 45 minutes late. Um, now, this guy was actually not trying to bilk me out of a fare. Um, he was following his GPS very, very religiously. Um, the GPS was attracted by a road called East Drive, which kind of snakes through uh, Central Park. Um, you know, it's kind of a windy road, but so long where the crow flies, but uh, 
but the GPS said you should really take this road because there's no traffic on it at all. So exploit this feature, right? In fact, the reason there was no traffic is because that road was closed for repairs that day. Uh, so you have an adverse selection problem when if you're not um, checking things against kind of common sense, and if you're not skeptical of even when you get a good result from a from an algorithm, um, you can wind up exploiting the noise and not and not the signal. Um, so I want to move now into three kind of very broad suggestions here. Again, uh, again, there aren't that many universals across different domains of prediction, but things that I think are generally good attitudes or habits to adopt. And this, by the way, is a, a neon sign depicting Bayes' theorem. Uh, Bayes' theorem is very sexy now in, among statisticians and so forth, but, but the basic idea is just it gives you a mathematical way to weigh new information against what you already know or what you already believe. Um, weighing new data is a core skill that most of us are not very good at intuitively. You see, for example, in coverage of politics where, where every new poll is treated as a game changer. Um, in part, that's because of the perverse incentives of, of these papers who don't want to publish an article saying, nothing important happened to gay, go home and watch football, right? But that's, I mean, that's the real story, probably 90% of the time. You should not really worry about the news, nothing important, nothing real changed. Um, but everything is seen as revolutionary. Or in contrast, uh, you know, sometimes maybe academic science is too slow to adopt to new paradigms, new evidence, but this balance is, is hard to strike. Bayes' theorem gives you a mathematical way to do it. Um, but there are three kind of broader principles that I draw that are, I think, in line with Bayesian thinking, uh, one of which is I call, well, you can see the three. Think probabilistically, know where you're coming from, and try and error. So let me explain each one of these very, very briefly. Um, so imagine that this is not an ugly PowerPoint slide, but a river in North Dakota. The Red River of the North in North Dakota, where um, every year in the spring, you have, uh, it's cold up there, um, so you have the snow finally melts and um, causes runoff into the streams and into the rivers, so you face the risk of flooding every year, every spring. Um, so in 1997, you had an especially cold winter in the Great Plains. Uh, the Weather Service told people in Grand Forks, North Dakota, that the river would crest at 49 feet. So they were a little bit worried. Uh, their flood levy went up to 51 feet instead, but it's a weather service, they're, they're pretty good. So, uh, so very few people bought insurance. They thought they'd be okay. Um, what the weather service did not tell people is that the margin of error on their forecast was plus or minus nine feet based on how well it had done historically. Um, they were afraid that if they conveyed uncertainty in the outlook, people wouldn't give the forecast any credit. Um, and in fact, the flood waters crested at 53 feet instead, so kind of a good prediction relative to the margin of error, well within the confidence interval, but it did cause three quarters of the town of Grand Forks, North Dakota to flood, and almost none of it was insured. So, uh, uh, but since then they've gotten a lot better. So if you look at, for example, uh, hurricane forecasts, now there are not a lot of hurricanes in, in the UK, but if you uh, eavesdrop on the US, you'll see they have um, uh, forecasts that have improved a lot now. They have what they call a cone of uncertainty, whereas you go out in time, um, the more uh, unclear it is which direction the hurricane will take, although often the forecasts are very good. This is the chart they had for Hurricane Sandy five days before the storm hit, um, and they pinpointed the almost exact county in New Jersey where, where it hits. So this is a real, uh, real triumph of kind of predictive science, and in general, weather forecasts have gotten a lot better. So 25 years ago, you get a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico, they would only get within about 350 miles on average of landfall three days in advance. Uh, you can't evacuate the entire American South. 
Um, but now they're within about 100 miles. On average, three days in advance, you can evacuate uh, parts of Louisiana. People might not listen, but you can, you can do it. It's at least plausible, and it saves a lot of lives as a result. Um, the fact that weather forecasters understand that none of us are, are omniscient, that we have to use probability as a compromise between being ignorant and being omniscient, um, has helped them to, to come a lot farther. They've made progress where a lot of fields have not. Um, the next suggestion, and it's easier said than done, of course, is, uh, is know where you're coming from, meaning know what your weak points are, or at least strive to, to uh, engage in that self-discovery process. Know what your biases and your perspective might be. Um, this is a, a map uh, showing the American naval stations in 1941 before, before we entered into World War II. Um, so you see we have um, bases in the Midway Islands, Wake Atoll, Guam, up in Alaska, and of course, Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. But this is before the age of, of global satellites. So what you'd, you'd have is a set of reconnaissance missions going out a few hundred miles from each base. So, uh, so Japan has this interest in moving six gigantic aircraft carriers, each the size of several football pitches, through the Pacific. Um, so where do they go? Well, they go exactly where we're not looking. It's pretty obvious in retrospect. Um, and yet we um, were very surprised the United States was by the Pearl Harbor attacks. We thought they might attack your naval possessions instead in the Pacific. Um, and so as much of a shock to the psyche as September 11th was 60 years later. Uh, but the point is that we are defined just as Deep Blue was in the chess example by, by our weakest link sometimes. We are attacked at spots where we're vulnerable and where we're biased sometimes. Um, it's also the case, uh, there's some research saying that, that people who claim to be less biased are, are often more so. Um, so in Cheryl Sandberg is the COO of Facebook. In her, uh, in her new book, Lean In, she describes an experiment done on HR executives where they're given identical resumes except the name, the gender of the name is changed from John to Jane or, or Martin to Melinda or whatever else. Um, and typically, many HR executives discriminate against the female employee for no other reason than the gender cue given by her name. But what that study found is that people who claim to be totally indifferent toward gender actually discriminated more than people who said, yes, I have some bias that I work to counteract and contradict, and I have to fight against that, and then I make better, better decisions as, a, as an HR executive. Um, the last principle here is what I call try and error. So I kind of gave a talk at, uh, at Google earlier today, and, and one thing Google does is run thousands and thousands of experiments every year on their search, on their algorithms, on their other products. They'll come out with things that, that don't work so well, like Google Wave, say, or something, and then, uh, and then, and then, uh, and then see other products take off when they weren't expecting them to. Um, this process of, of trial and error in a big data environment is very useful, precisely because we don't always know what's going to happen ahead of time. What looks good in the model might not really work very well in the real world. So usually, um, the more you try, you kind of gradually refine toward truth, toward a better system in the end. That's the way science works often two steps forward and one step back. But kind of looking at the context of individual businesses, you see uh, you, know, you put in a little bit of effort and, uh, and try to be more data-driven and quantitative when you weren't before. You get a lot of the way there just by kind of measuring things accurately if you can. Um, of course, in competitive industries, there's a water level as well. Um, the easy things are the things that everyone does. If you want to get ahead, it's harder. I look, by the way, for fields where, where that water level is low instead of high, right? So, so political coverage, right? I used to play poker, and that got very difficult. But um, there are a lot of suckers in political punditry. They're not very good at their jobs at all. And so it's easy to look really smart just by being kind of average, right? It's a, it's a nice meal ticket there. <laughs> 
Um, but eventually you get in more competitive fields like, like engineering or, or finance or, or, uh, or technology, and you are usually making gains around the margin. And that's kind of the way the world works. Um, uh, big data won't absolve us of the need to, 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 to work hard um, and to keep making progress and to expect um, some things to work and some things not to. And that's where your kind of profit or your competitive advantage comes from. So kind of the big lesson, I suppose, is, is just this, which is, uh, this is a, a, a poem, a short poem from a Danish mathematician uh, named Piet Hein. Uh, and he says, the road to wisdom, well, it's plain and simple to express, air and air and air again, but less and less and less. So thank you. Thank you very much, Nate. Um, let's talk about fat tails. Yeah. I, I'm, <clears throat> I'm a huge fan of this idea of experimentation, and, and you run lots of A-B tests, you run lots of randomized trials, you learn a lot about the world. Um, there are certain extreme events that it's hard to learn about. Uh, and, of course, the whole point of extreme events is you don't see them very often. So even if you have a lot of sure. data that goes back many, many decades, um, you may not see them. Or you may see one event, uh, and that is your only example of a fat tail event and your, your only source of data. Um, according to Nassim Taleb, these sorts of problems are absolutely endemic in the world. They're particularly endemic in finance. And people make very, very big bets that very unlikely things are not going to happen. And Taleb argues the data just don't help us when it comes to this kind of problem. Are, are you more optimistic than he is? Um, I, I agree with him in large part, and I very much appreciate his skepticism toward, um, toward models that claim to have very pristine answers, and I don't understand that, that fitting a curve to a past relationship is not the same thing as predicting the future. It's a first step when you have a very rich and robust data set like in baseball, you can kind of take the model out of the box off the shelf, and it works pretty well, but not in fields where you have longer time horizons, um, and you can get yourself in a lot of trouble that way. With, with that said, um, you know, part of what I would say in the book is that um, when there are cases where you're in a data-poor environment and you can't just purely test things to death and say, well, this works and this doesn't, or the cost of a test is too high for you or for society, then, then drawing analogies from what works in different fields can be helpful. Or looking for it uh, beyond your immediate context toward, toward like or similar context. So, for example, I described before how some seismologists in Japan, um, but you couldn't have a magnitude 9.0 earthquake there in the area that you did. Um, probably it's because they had about 40 years of data, of worthwhile data, and they hadn't been anything larger than a magnitude um, 7.8 or so, right? And they said, well, you know, um, we're special, we're unique, um, you can't have an earthquake that large here, when really you're only supposed to have larger than that size earthquake once every 30 years or so. So it not happening every once in 40 years means, means really quite little. Um, instead, though, they could have made extrapolations from the worldwide earthquake catalog, which indicates very clearly that when you have a large number of magnitude 7.0 earthquakes, you have a potential for, for earthquakes as large as magnitude 9 or larger, as you had in Sumatra. They have the same pattern, a lot of uh, very large earthquakes, but not catastrophic, and you had several catastrophic earthquakes just a few years later. So um, it's kind of a very long-winded answer, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, fat tails are a real risk. People can't always assume that everything has a nice, gentle, bell-shaped distribution, but I'm not as uh, pessimistic about our ability to make any progress on them at all. I think making 
broader realizations where, again, the broader you look out, the more general your principles are. But still, I think there are a few broad principles that can apply and make decision-making and forecasting better, even in data-poor environments. So data-poor environments pose certain challenges. Data-rich environments, of course, pose challenges. And you, you outlined this com combinatorial explosion. Another question, of course, is who owns this data and what do they do with it? So I'm sure you're familiar with the story about Target. Uh, let me just summarize. So Target department store in the US um, realized that it was very profitable if they could identify women um, who were pregnant because you could shower them with pregnancy vouchers and then there'd be a lifelong bond with Target and they'd buy stuff for their kids all the way through. And they had baby shower gift registries. And they realized all the women who sign up for baby shower gift registries are presumably pregnant. And we can see how they're changing their behavior. They're, they're buying um, scent-free moisturizers, for instance, whereas previously they would buy scented moisturizers. And then they said, we have women who have changed their behavior in the same way, but have not signed up for baby shower gift registries. And we reckon that they are also pregnant. <laughs> so then they mail them the vouchers so for you know, diapers, nappies, um, cribs, etc. And then a gentleman in Minnesota called his local target and said, why the hell are you sending my teenage daughter <laughs> vouchers for diapers and for cribs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so target apologized and said, look, uh, yeah, the algorithm, the algorithm sometimes makes mistakes. And the manager was so embarrassed by this, he called back a couple of days later to apologize further. And the man said, actually, I should apologize to you because I've found out that there are a couple of things that have happened in this house that <laughs> I wasn't previously aware of. So Target knew his daughter was pregnant before he knew his daughter yeah. was pregnant. Um, how do you feel about that story? <laughs> well, so, uh, so, yeah, one big question is, uh, is you have efficiency gains, based on, on use of more data, but where does the surplus come from that efficiency? Is it consumer surplus or producer surplus instead? Um, you know, in the political arena, it worries me a little bit that it's essentially um, producer surplus, meaning that, uh, that campaigns get more efficient at targeting voters. I think there's a thin line in politics, if any at all, between targeting and manipulation, and so maybe politics becomes too efficient for, for its own good. Because the incentives in politics, if, if they're left to their own devices, are, are very, very short term. They're all about re-election. Um, um, you, can, you can try and trick voters' heuristics in a lot of ways. And that could be a dangerous phenomenon, potentially, I think. Um, what can we do about it? Um, I, you know, maybe kind of a guerrilla. So I wrote an article in the New York Times Magazine about, uh, about how to exploit the airlines yourself, where they have uh, scenarios where, for example, you would book a ticket from, uh, from New York to uh, St. Louis, right? Um, and it would be more expensive than booking a ticket from New York to LA that has a layover in St. Louis. So, um, so you can, uh, based on price discrimination. So, but there are ways to search for fares, for hidden city fares that actually uh, let you exploit that. And there's some conditions, but you know, kind of fighting back as a, as a consumer, potentially. But um, this is, I mean, this is a, something that a, you know, a, a very highly educated, very well-connected, <laughs> very well-informed subset of people are going to so here's, be able to do, but here's actually one problem that I, that I worry about uh, a little bit. So, so one area where I think there, there really is a kind of consumer surplus is in um, things like restaurant reviews. Now I can go, I go to a lot of conferences now. You, know, you go to 
Orlando or some other godforsaken place and trying to find a good, I like Orlando. <laughs> trying to find a good restaurant in Orlando against the odds, right? But you look at the Yelp reviews, but there's a good barbecue place or something, right? Um, and so you wind up going there. But that means people who are not using a review site like Yelp um, will find, oh, that place is too crowded. Let me go to the place across the street instead. So there's kind of an adverse selection of people who are not actually investing a lot of effort in, in looking at these review sites and looking at rankings. Um, you know, that could be a potential problem. Or you can have um, cases where people are trying to cater to the metric and not to the actual uh, quality. So, you know, colleges and universities now in the United States are very concerned with their, with their U.S. News and World Report ranking. And these rankings are not especially good by any means, but they're kind of the industry standard for better or worse. So, um, so you have a lot of colleges now which will, uh, which will uh, almost intentionally try and appeal to students who they know have no chance of getting in whatsoever, wasting the students' time and the application fees because it makes their stats look better. Um, so, you know, that's another potential problem as well. I wanted to ask you about data visualization, which has become very chic suddenly. And I've sort of played my own part in this. And I'll see something going around, and it'll be this beautiful, beautiful image. And I'm a bit hazy about exactly what it looks really cool, you know, graphs of things flying everywhere. And so I'll tweet it and yada yada. And I started looking at some of these, and some of them are uh, genius. Some of them are amazing, truly beautiful, uh, compact presentations of information. And sometimes the data is just junk, and the whole thing is tendentious, and it's a trick. But it's a beautiful trick. And because it's a beautiful trick, it's so much more powerful than the people who would have lied to us in some other way are now lying to us so much more effectively. So. <laughs> Are you, are, you, are you concerned that the fashion for data visualization is actually leading us to, to drop our guard, or is it basically a force for good? Well, so I think if you hold a certain set of facts constant, then, then most people, including most academics, most experts, understand it better if you can visualize that piece of data. Um, you know, there have been studies shown that when you, um, when you describe a regression analysis to academics, they have no idea what's going on. You, you present it as a simple chart, then, then they get the hypothesis a lot more a lot more quickly. Um, the journalists I work with at the New York Times, the data journalists, I mean, they, they call themselves journalists. I thought at first it didn't make a lot of sense, but it's because they're taking complex information and trying to distill it down in a way that, um, that captures the essence of the problem, that conveys complex information in a way that is honest and accurate um, and maybe also a bit more elegant. Um, but yes, I mean, every tool of the trade can be used to manipulate people instead. Uh, you know, maybe people have gone too far toward thinking that a graph that looks aesthetically pleasing um, therefore speaks to the truth. But I don't know. I, I'm, for, uh, I'm for more visualization rather than less, I suppose. I think it's easier to, um, to couch some bullshit in academic prose and obfuscate than it is to actually uh, uh, do it with the graph. People can kind of see more self-evidently where the truth might lie. Let me ask one more question, and then I'll, I'll open this up to our, to our audience, who I'm sure are uh, very keen to ask you stuff themselves. Um, so the, the, the question is about um, predictions. And you became very famous for your successful electoral predictions. You've been, I think, appropriately modest. Some, some of them were lucky. Most of them weren't. Um, some, there are some fields where people make very, very bad predictions because they're very, very difficult 
fields. And there are some fields where people make good predictions because fundamentally it's not that hard. Sure, yeah. So I wanted to ask some advice. Where is the field where there's, there's the biggest unexploited gap? Where actually <laughs> the predictions really can't be that difficult, but somehow nobody's quite clocked on. I mean, you know, sports used to be one, and I think uh, less and less so, but maybe, you know, Maybe football a little bit, where it's not going to get the same. Uh, soccer or you? No, I'm look. I'm conscious of my audience. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Real football. Okay. But yeah, where you're not going to get as far as you do in baseball. Say it's it's a it, not a very linear sport. It's very fluid. But still, there's been until recently a big resistance to using any type of, of analytic tools at all. Um, you know, I think education's an area where um, where it's not easy to predict at all. It's a very important area for. Society. So um, when you say predicting education, what do you, what do you have? Well, in mind? more analytics in education, right? Okay. Um, so you know, kind of measuring student and teacher performance. Again, this is not an easy problem at all. It's a very difficult problem, but it is a case where you know you could see if you were kind of applying yourself to something for for societal good, then maybe that's that's where you'd go. Okay. Um, but to make a profit, in oftentimes it's really banal kind of stuff. I mean, you know, which companies have have big data? It's like Walmart and and Tesco and, and companies like that who know and how target, to... It turns and Target, out. yeah. yeah. Um, you know, those are the companies where, uh, where they really are improving their profit at the margin. So it's not always the big, exciting things that are, that are easy. Thank you. Let me, let me turn to our audience. Maybe we could take uh, two or three questions. I can't... Oh, yeah, magic, lights. Um, could, we, could we get a microphone to uh, the gentleman uh, at the back? Uh, anybody else want to volunteer? Or we'll... Uh, oh, and... Uh, Microphone to the gentleman here as well. Thank you. Sir at the back. Oh, hi. Um, you said that you don't believe in, in technical analysis. I'm not saying that I do. But um, uh, uh, a randomly generated sample can generate false patterns. But if you know that the sample was not randomly generated, shouldn't you look at those patterns to understand the biases that created it? That's number one. And two is, oh, do you... Sorry, I'm, I'm going to... Stop your number one. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and uh, thank you very much. And, uh, and yes, I was. I should have said one question each, please, and do keep them perky and short. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I just wondered whether you use or whether you have a view on um, predictive markets, like the Iowa market system. Thanks very much. So predictive markets and technical analysis can be useful. Um, so you know, there, there's one question here where if you. Um, uh, yeah, so you can argue that experiment is unfair to technical analysts, right? Because you present something in the context that's a little dishonest. We say, well, here's a, here's a stock market chart. Interpret it when it's really just a randomly generated piece of data instead. So you're kind of presenting it under false pretenses. And I, I, I acknowledge that, and that and, can and be... We, we should say, by the way, um, to those who don't know, so technical analysis is where you're trying to predict what a stock will do purely based on what the stock has done before rather than any sort of fundamental information about the company. Yeah. Um, with that said, there is reasonably compelling evidence that uh, the technical analysis uh, does not produce excess returns or not very significant excess returns. I'm not a pure efficient market hypothesis guy, um, but part of the problem is that, and look, I've, I've had my moments where I tried to not actually make bets in the stock market, but tried to play around with stock market data. And you can see um, correlations that are true in one period. And guess what? People discover them and exploit them, and so you might actually be on the losing side of a trade instead. A serial positive correlation in one period can reverse out and be a negative serial correlation instead, getting you in a lot of trouble potentially. So technical analysis in particular of the stock market is an area where, um, where I'm very skeptical that there are any kind of real excess returns. Um, 
you know, as far as uh, prediction markets go, I'm- Maybe I'm, you could explain briefly what prediction markets are. Yeah, so prediction markets are, are ways to, uh, to bet on, on political and economic events. So, uh, so in the US, we, uh, we used to have a market called Intrade, which was recently shut down, um, but it would assign a probability to each candidate winning. You can kind of buy Obama stock at, at 60 pence and sell at 80 pence when his chances go up or wait until the election is over and he cashes out at 100 pence or at zero, right? Um, and, uh, you know, so I think relative to the political pundits, these things are, are pretty useful reality checks. Um, there's been some back and forth about whether they're good as compared to models like 538s. I think our stuff is maybe a bit better, but there are a couple things here. Number one is that these markets are, uh, don't have a lot of uh, liquidity, really. Where I, when I used to hang out with poker players, um, you know, for them to make a serious bet, they were talking about a five-figure bet, 10,000 bucks or so. Um, whereas in these stock markets, because they're not officially licensed, they're, they're much smaller increments instead. So not that interesting to serious traders. By contrast, by the way, um, the day after Mitt Romney lost the election in the US, uh, oil and gas stocks lost billions of dollars in market capitalization. Um, healthcare stocks, which are thought to benefit from uh, the new Obama's healthcare bill remaining in place, gained hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, so, you know, there are ways to bet on, on political outcomes to the stock market, but, but, um, but, you know, these markets themselves are, are not that, uh, are, are not that liquid and have a lot of transaction costs and so forth. Um, the other question is, uh, about markets in general, I suppose, where my view is that, uh, markets are the worst economic system ever invented, except for all the other ones, to paraphrase the quote about democracy. Um, so yeah, you can have herding behavior. That's where you sometimes get these fat tail outcomes that Taleb is worried about, where most of the time kind of trusting what your neighbors do is a good instinct, but sometimes they're, they're as deaf and dumb as you are, so they kind of lead you off a cliff. And that's why you sometimes have catastrophic behavior in the stock market um, and have very, very big tail outcomes as a, as a result. And now, of course, we have algorithms who can herd for us. So they can do Absolutely. it much faster than we can. Well, it's really, and you know, I, I think one of the scariest events of the past few years is the, is the flash crash, not the one I talked about earlier, but where you had, for reasons that are still hard to figure out, you had a 700 point drop in the, in the, uh, in the Dow Jones within about 10 or 15 minutes and then an equally quick recovery. I mean, that's, that's very frightening, I yeah, think. And that, that happened on the day uh, David Cameron was elected and we still haven't figured out why. <laughs> Not why he was elected, but why there was a flash crash. Um, so uh, let, let's take two or three more questions. Uh, any, any volunteers? Um, yes, so uh, person there, gentleman there, gentleman there. Thank you. I'm only allowed to ask one question, so I'm going to just ask one, although I'm dying to ask two. Uh, so the first question that I'll ask, which is, is that I'm wondering if you have any views on what's happening here and UKIP and the Conservative Party and Labor and the upcoming election. And I guess I have to ask you, have you met with any of the political leaders here as well? When you say views, you mean views about the electoral outcome? Of course. Okay, thank you. Uh, gentleman there. Uh, thank you. I was very interested in your chart about the water levels. I run a small forecasting business where I forecast how many seats are available on any airline flight, and I sell that to airline employees who fly standby. Let's say my forecasts are 75% accurate, and my competitors are way, way below me. What criteria should I use to figure out if it's worth a huge amount of effort? 
to go from 75% to maybe 80 or 85. Okay, thank you. Somebody, yeah, thank you. Um, how did you feel about being a target of Fox News for actually doing maths correctly instead of... Uh... <laughs> yes, I, I'm reminded of that, uh, that election night comment. It, you know, it, it, is that real or is that just math you do as a Republican to make yourself feel better, which was actually said on Fox News. So what did it feel like to be the most wanted man in America, according to Fox News, um, when you're running a business? How much money is it worth spending to improve your forecasting at the margin? And who will win the next election? And by the way, have you met any of them? Um, <laughs> so I think in the United States, you have a, an issue with the Republican Party, or some parts of it having become detached from uh, empiricism, I think. And that, uh, <laughs> and you know, one thing that That's makes. So polite. Yeah. Uh, one thing that makes empiricism empiricism is that you do subject yourself to tests and prediction is one of the ways along with validation verification to test whether your your subjective view of reality and all our views are subjective um, actually matches up whatsoever to the object of reality that we all share instead and for a lot of republicans it didn't um, i think partly because the model really was pretty simple and even you know real clear politics is another site in the u.s that has a much simpler version of what we do they really do just take an average and they had obama ahead by, by a pretty uh, good margin as well. So you start to attack the, the person if you, if you can't attack the idea, I suppose. Um, but kind of moving into UK politics instead, see, you guys all seem like very, very sensible to me. I did meet with a couple of uh, MPs on Channel 4 the other day, one uh, Labour and one Tory, and I think we should import them to the US. It could be a growth industry for you guys, importing, importing smart, competent MPs into our Congress. Uh, <laughs> From either party, we'll take them, I think, could, could produce a lot of gains for, for us. Um, you know, in terms of, of, uh, of, of where the next election will go, I think it's clear if you had the election um, today that, that Labour would gain a lot of seats, probably uh, a majority. Um, but two years is a lot of time. Democrats got, got, uh, did very poorly in the midterm elections of the U.S. in 2010 and then came back again in 2012. Um, as far as UKIP goes, again, I, I am... Again, I think of you guys compared to the U.S. as being very sensible. So, since the Tea Party kind of, um, kind of eventually kind of crashed and burned in the U.S., I think you know UKIP might meet a similar fate potentially. Although, do recall that um, um, people throughout the European continent have been moving more in the direction of the radical left or the radical right. Um, is is forecasting a British general election a similar problem to forecasting a presidential election or, or congressional elections in the US? I mean, is, is there a similar amount of data available or is it a fundamentally different no, it's, problem? No, it's more challenging. We had a forecast put out in 2010 where we kind of got the model caught uh, Clegg mania, I think, or Nick Clegg fever and, and overestimating how well Lib Dems would do and underestimating how well Labour would do. But there are things that make this harder here where when you do have a multi-candidate race, there are a lot more vectors by which voters can move from one vote to another. That makes it harder. Um, the fact that you don't have as much data here, where you have you don't have polls very often of individual constituencies, you have to infer from the top-down data where the seats will end up. Uh, look, uh, we had a pretty confident position prediction election day based on state-by-state -state polls. The national polls were were less clear, where Obama had pulled a little bit ahead in national polls by election day, um, but that would be more of a 60-40 edge instead of a 
10 edge, mostly, mostly based on the state polls instead. So the volume of data is much less, and the process in a multi-party system is more complicated. And if I'm running a business, I'm trying to make forecasts. How, how do I decide how much money to actually spend on this process? What, what's the effort that I should be expending to, to produce better forecasts of, well, anything I might want to do? Well, it's, it's tough to, uh, to know where you are on that curve, right? I mean, the, the, uh, the kind of eternal consultant's dilemma is that anyone who actually needed a consultant wouldn't know it, right? Um, so, but, but no... <laughs> uh, but knowing kind of where you are on that curve and how, how good are you right now and how good is the competition, I, I think there's not any one uh, generic answer you can give, except that you should expect that, uh, that you're not going to make as big gains as you refine a model and as complexity as you do as you do at first, necessarily. Um, people like to talk about the idea of a, of a tipping point, and there might be the occasional case where that can occur. But more often, the tipping point, it's this shape, right? There's a concave or convex. I always get those mixed up, right? But yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah. OK. So, but it's downward sloping, the, right? The, the marginal gain that you yeah, make whatever. instead. And, so, um, and also knowing kind of where the competition lies. So you know, I was one of those people who, when I played poker, when people were starting to play the game, you had a kind of poker bubble, because um, it was on TV a lot. On TV, they show you the cards your opponent has. People thought, this is pretty easy, right? And then the casino, <laughs> unless you have x-ray goggles, maybe the Google glasses could actually, but, uh, but you don't have x-ray vision, so it's much harder. But people didn't realize that for a couple of years. So it was easy to take their money in, in the interim. Uh, but knowing where is, is uh, if you're having success in a business, how do you measure relative to your competition? Is it because there are rents in the field now that are being exploited, or because you're actually all that good yourself? Do uh, Google and these guys really just know everything about us? Or is this something that credulous journalists tell us and they actually have, the, the, and actually their models are extremely vague and, and extremely flawed? Um, you know, I think, I think they're better than a lot of things. And sometimes they're, they're it seems eerie. You'll get like an ad for, uh, for a travel destination that you're interested in, for example. Um, but some of it's pretty, Pretty obvious, right? And if you start looking at, so for example, I get a lot of, uh, of ads served to me based on political candidates that I'm researching. Like, here's a Republican candidate for Senate in Rhode Island, right? You know, I'm a, I'm a reporter or an analyst, right? So I have to research his platform or, or figure out how much money he's raised for, for the model. But they think I'm a big guy who might want to donate to his campaign instead, that I'm really interested in this Barry Hinckley guy or whoever he was. So you can have some flaws like that. And you know, what they're doing is like not usually all that complicated, just kind of making fairly obvious inferences. Um, and because the cost is, is very low, so you to spam out emails to people, then having a 0.2% a, uh, a hit rate instead of a 0.1% hit rate with some random Groupon coupon or something or, or, uh, or some piece of, of email offer or whatever else, uh, you know, that uh, produces profit around the margin. It still means they're wrong 99.8% of the time, though. The only ads I ever get served are meet singles in your area now, so you can imagine what it is that I search for online. Um, let's have some more questions. Uh, lady here. A anyone else? Anyone else? Uh, gentleman there. And I, I think, far back, I think it's a lady. If it's a gentleman, I apologize. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in this idea of knowing where you're coming from. Um, and in the in the, the Cheryl Sandberg example that you gave, uh, presumably she had to have an idea that they might have this bias. So she then does this test. But if she'd asked them before, are you biased? They'd have said, well, no, of course not. And the nature of bias is that we, we don't know that we have it. 
Do you have any view on how you can help people uncover their biases? And I don't mean the really obvious ones, but how can you, because there are, there are blind spots. Yeah. How do we know we have them? Yeah, thank you. Uh, gentleman there. Yep. I, have a, uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, your view of opinion polls and um, different methods of polling, whether it's online polling like YouGov or face-to-face -face or telephone polling, and should we trust any of them anymore? Thank you. And the lady at the back. It's actually a gentleman, but... <laughs> sorry. The, the light's not very good. Very sorry, sir. I have a very low probability of hitting you with this microphone if I throw it, so I... <laughs> Thank you for an interesting talk. Uh, you spoke about cognitive bias and experimentation, and you put up a very uh, important paper in the field. I think there's a particularly interesting problem in that space, which is around drug testing and the prevalence of placebo effect uh, that's really becoming pretty problematic. I don't know if you've done any work in that space and have any views on where the drug trial industry is going. Okay, thank you very much, sir. Um, so, how do we uncover biases, particularly biases that we don't know we have? Um, what do you think of different opinion polling methods? Are any of them helpful or reliable? And what about pharmaceutical testing? We've got, a, we've got problems with missing trial data, um, trial registries that are not being enforced. Yeah. Um, how can we sort that out? So, you know, I recognize that saying don't be biased is like writing a book saying, well, the key to success is being smart and successful, right? Like not very useful advice, not very easy to do. Um, you know, I do think part of it is that uh, 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 being able to empathize with what another person's point of view might be. Um, one of the few academic studies that systematically studies expert prediction is by a guy named um, Phil Tetlock, who is professor at University of, of Pennsylvania, who took political scientists um, economists, uh, people in government, so-called experts over a period of 20 years and had them make predictions repeatedly about, for example, would Quebec secede from Canada or uh, will the European Union form, or is that a good idea? Uh, uh, you know, um, will Russia or Soviet Union collapse and so forth? And, and he found that uh, there were personality traits that kind of predicted whether people made um, pretty bad predictions or really bad predictions. No one made very good predictions, really. Um, the people who made okay predictions were people whom we called, um, whom we called foxes, and foxes tend to be multidisciplinary. So they do a lot of reading, they consider different points of view, they kind of scavenge for information instead of hedgehogs who are kind of ideologues who have one big, sexy, romantic idea that might sell a lot of books, say, but, um, but which is often overstated and not as universal as they would like to make it out to be. So, um, so in any given context, I, I know it's hard to de-bias yourself, I suppose, but, but, you know, kind of in the first place, um, trying to just have more conversations with people and challenging yourself to read dissenting points of view, it's a very big part of the scientific process, and, and later on is finding ways to, to test yourself. Um, so the weather forecasts, for example, are, are very good now, but they weren't necessarily at first. Um, it took them a while to, uh, to learn how to calibrate the forecast properly, so giving yourself tests and trials is a way, um, if you actually are concerned about being accurate, where you can converge toward the truth in the end. Opinion polls. Um, so in some ways, it's quite a miracle that uh, the polls do as well as they do every year, um, where, where right now in the US, only about 
10% of people respond to even the most thorough political polls. So basically, if you respond to a political poll, you're kind of a weirdo in the US. Uh, you know, you ought to have better things to do, I suppose. But lo and behold, this 10% of the population, which, which may or may not be representative, um, uh, has, has worked pretty well in the last several US presidential elections. But you know, you talk about, you talk about tail risks, um, you know, you worry there that you're trying to uh, rebalance a model using demographic weighting, and it's worse when you have 30% um, of people answering, then 20% and 10%. At some point, though, you might have a, an epic disaster in a major U.S. election, which is when I'll, you know, I'll leave and go live in Borneo or, or something instead. Uh, uh, but, 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 you know, one encouraging sign, though, was that um, online polls had a pretty good year in the U.S. So YouGov is a firm that's active here, um, and the U.S. did a pretty good job. Google does some polls now, and they were, they were pretty good. So that's encouraging. Um, people now kind of live much of their lives online. Um, that's the easiest way most to reach, especially young people. And so the fact that those polls did, did pretty well, they're not a perfectly refined technology yet, um, is a good sign. And what was the last? It's a fact that there are different polling technologies now. You can have these online panels. You can have quick and dirty stuff. You can phone people up. There are all these different ways of doing it. Is that providing? A genuine diversity of, of methods and making the technique more robust, or actually are they basically making similar errors and well, you're having so to correct there are, some of the things? You know, one issue is that the um, so you know I think the online polls are a, a worthwhile technological effort. There are quick and dirty polls in the U.S. that um, that uh, that basically spam call or robocall people, and they only call people who have landlines and not cell phones. Um, right now in the U.S., about a third of voters. Uh, don't have landlines in their homes at all. Um, about half of voters don't use their landlines uh, or don't have one, I guess, right? So um, if you only call landlines, you're going to get a lot of cranky old people on the phone, basically. <laughs> um, you're going to miss younger voters, people in, in cities in the US. And so you'll get uh, kind of a, a skewed sample. So I think polls that, uh, that are only surveying um, you know, two thirds of the population are, are markedly inferior to polls that are trying to survey everyone. But now, with the internet, where inter internet penetration is up to 90% or so, um, you know, that can be more helpful. But yeah, I mean, the whole idea of the wisdom of crowds that you have diverse points of view. There's some evidence that in the US, the, the cheapo pollsters um, heard and calibrate off the good pollsters. So you have a demonstrably inaccurate view of the race. Then a good pollster comes out, you say, oh, there's been a shift in opinion in the state, right? When really you just kind of tweak some number in your algorithm to replicate what the good pollster would do, so you can kind of draft and coast off them instead. Um, so I think the equilibrium in the long run is to have um, a few very expensive telephone polls and, uh, and a large number of kind of online polls that are updated more regularly. And the middle ground between that, the cheap telephone polls, I think, are, are, are not a business I would want to invest in. And so the, the, the final question was about the, the way that drug trials are conducted and reported. And I guess we're all used to the idea that some quack will be selling some pseudo-vitamin supplement and he'll get, a, get something published in a not very reputable newspaper and sales will increase. And so we, we're used to the idea of, well, no, you need to see something that's been tried out properly with a proper double-blind randomized controlled trial. But of course, the issue there is, well, maybe the drug company funded five trials, and they only showed us the two that yeah. gave us the results that they wanted. Now, I, you know, I, we've got trial registries to yeah. correct for that problem, but they're not being used. So, um, you know, I mean, my understanding in the U.S. is that um, the FDA process is is pretty thorough and pretty conservative and pretty cautious. Um, 
is not something I know a ton about, though. I do think in general, though, that um, you know this finding where um, re re results that are reported initially in journals often don't hold up. I think part of the issue is that um, is that uh, you have a peer review process that um, that is a very loose screen, really, for for quality, where there are not necessarily a lot of good methodologists in academic fields or good experimenters, but not people who really know the quirks that can occur, where the incentives are a little bit perverse. What really tells you whether a technique works or not is um, in the absence of experimental data is repeat experiments under different conditions by different scientists in different laboratories. A kind of consensus view of science or, or lack thereof is what's a lot more valuable than, um, than any one academic paper. So I think you should actually, as a result, um, lower the barriers to publishing results. I think you should replace a lot of academic journals with basically with, uh, with blogs, <laughs> for lack of a better term, where a scientist says, well, today I ran this or that experiment, and this one was kind of interesting, but uh, I didn't publish it, and this one was a total dud, right? And record all that data, right? And that would be a lot more honest and a lot more useful, I think, instead of having to wait for a year and a half to, to publish and then um, realize that, you know, you exaggerate your results because you want to get published and want to have a big, um, you know, R-squared in your regression equation and so forth. Um, you know, in some ways, that culture, I think, really creates barriers to, to achieving that consensus that it takes longer than it should. I, I, I want to sort of follow up a little bit on the, this, the information architecture here of who has the data, who shares the data, how it's analyzed. Um, I can certainly see the argument that you know, one wants scientific research to be conducted in a very open, transparent way and so on. But so much data now is private. I mean, we were talking about this example of Target and the pregnancy yeah. vouchers. I mean, Target are not going to publish their data set. And this, this world of big data is actually a world in which many private companies gather a lot of small pieces of information about us because we sign away our rights and we let them do it. Um, who, I mean, it's not just a case of who stops them abusing their position. It's also a case of how do we get value out of that data when they keep it secret? And we could, we could presumably use it to do all kinds of good. I mean, yeah, Google could be really evil if they wanted to, you know. They would never uh, do that. They would, they're Google. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I don't know. I mean, and these, so I think we should, you know, these are, are ethical questions, right? And, you know, one thing that, uh, that plagues a lot of bad analysis is that people kind of mix together their ethical questions with their empirical questions, you know. Um, and, you know, it's something you should, you should keep separate for the most part. Um, what your values are... Um, should, should not be dictated by the type of analysis that, <laughs> that you run, per se, but you have to know kind of what you're optimizing for, I suppose, yeah. or, or what you but ultimately it, want. But it's, it, but it's not just an ethical question. So Google, for instance, have Google flu trends, and they're trying to predict the spread of flu by people searching for flu remedies. And they've made some of that stuff available, and that's, that's great. But presumably there's all sorts of data that companies have that is privately valuable to them but could also be socially valuable to everybody else. And it seems to me this isn't just an ethical question. This is also a question about regulation, governance, or maybe not. Um, you know, I, and this is where kind of my kind of priors or my biases come in, where probably on, on a UK scale, I'll be thought of as being uh, quite libertarian, I suppose. I do think the idea of having, of having independence is, is important. Um, the wisdom of crowds works better when you have people who are coming to their own independent conclusions. So, um, so, you know, the idea of sharing data with your peers, I think, is valuable. The idea of the government owning all this data, I think, is maybe, is maybe less so, potentially. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I, I, you know, also, uh, 
the profit motive is something that motivates a lot of research as impure as the incentives can be for companies that want to seek a profit. They're often better than the ones that political pundits have, for example. That's why I tried to actually like bet uh, Joe Scarborough, a political uh, 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 kind of blowhard slash correspondent in the US who said that anyone who claimed that Obama was ahead in the race was a fool. So I offered to bet him 2,000 pounds for uh, $2,000 for, uh, for charity. He, he turned down the bet, of course, wasn't willing to put his money where his mouth is. But some of the heroes we have in the book are people who, who gamble for a living. Um, their incentives are clean. They don't have to worry about being politically correct. They just have to worry about, about being right. Um, and they tend to produce a lot of progress in the end. Poker has gotten very sophisticated now. Sports betting has. Um, and they're often good places to, um, whatever you think ethically about it, they're good places to learn technique from sometimes. More questions? So, oh God, everyone's sort of really perked up. So, lady there, lady there, lady there. One of the uh, largest areas of prediction is global macroeconomics, and it's proven to be almost universally wrong, where uh, austerity is supposed to spur economic growth and quantitative easing is supposed to make interest rates shoot up. And given the Reinhardt Rogoff paper has been discredited with an Excel spreadsheet error, and Paul Krugman is gleeing like a canary in, in uh, the Herald Tribune today, um, why is it so hard, given there's an, a gigantic amount of data, to predict what's going to happen in the global macro economy? Okay, thank you. I do understand that probably most of your political expertise in the United States of America um, and in Europe, and particularly as an island race, our main interest at the moment is not our local government, but the European situation. Um, and as islanders, I think we are slightly different from mainland Europe. Is it at all possible to have statistics to predict the outcome of this dilemma? Thank are, you, are you talking about European elections or the, or the European economic the European situation? Community which seems to be the European community, which seems to be hanging in some areas on a thread at the moment. Is it predicted to last? Thank you very much. Really, very similar question in, in many ways. And uh, the lady uh, there, please. And I will come to the gallery next. Sorry. Hi. As a member of Democrats Abroad, we like your predictions when you predict for Democrats. That's good. <laughs> um, I'm just wondering how you're looking at the 2014 elections and where you think um, Democrats should be putting their effort um, and how we might pick up some seats. Okay, so um, could you please advise the Democratic Party and <laughs> could you please advise the European Commission and could you please advise we economists? Um, why is it so hard to get economic forecasts right? So, I mean, let me talk a little bit about this, uh, this Reinhardt and Rogoff result. Um, where their contention was that uh, once you get debt levels above 90% of a debt to the GDP ratio, you have um, you hit some kind of inflection point, and it becomes very dangerous, basically. Um, and it was discovered that in their paper, um, where they published this result, there was a, a, a Microsoft Excel error where they averaged the wrong cells in the worksheet, and people have made a lot of fun of them as a result. And it's, it's embarrassing to make a mistake in Microsoft Excel, or even to use Microsoft Excel, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but I do think some of these arguments miss the point. People say, well, their, their analysis was, was error-ridden. Well, it wasn't. It, was, um, it made one really silly error that wasn't all that material and made 
a lot of assumptions that were questionable. Um, and, you know, it also uh, uh, made some maybe things that weren't representations, but, um, but didn't present the data in enough context. Where say you have a curve where you have GDP and you have, um, and you have economic growth and you see it kind of moves downward a bit. You just kind of show the curve itself, but you don't show all the data points around the curve where GDP is a very, very, very noisy data series. Um, this is a very insignificant predictor of GDP relative to all the other things that we maybe also can't predict, but they weren't really putting the data in context. They weren't thinking about causality at all. Uh, maybe if you have a bad economy, you collect fewer taxes, especially when you have a progressive tax rate as most Western countries do. And so the, the debt to GDP ratio becomes worse as a cause of economic trouble and not as the trigger of it. Um, and those very basic things that have nothing to do with the Excel error are the more important reasons to critique that paper, I think. Um, uh, people, I think, like to believe that, um, that economic research is, is pristine, that it's a pure science, when especially in macroeconomics, um, um, it's very assumption-driven. That's why you look at how robust is a result to changes in assumptions. If you tweak something in your model and you get a radically different result, then um, that's very, very dubious. You have to have a very, very strong prior, a very strong argument why the model should be exactly that way. And usually those arguments don't hold up very well. Um, so, you know, I mean, frankly, I think uh, the evidence on, on the, uh, the importance of, or the lack thereof of high debt burdens is, is so ambiguous that it resolves almost nothing. If you have theoretical reasons to think it's dangerous, then no evidence would convince you otherwise and, and vice versa, really. Um, but, you know, but why is macroeconomic forecasting so difficult? Um, one issue is, is measurement error, where there was a GDP figure that came out here, I think, the other day that had uh, Britain growing by 0.3%. Um, so a lot of people were relieved, oh, there's no triple dip recession. Um, but the margin of error on that figure is probably about plus or minus, I think, one or one and a half percent. So really, we don't know if we're sitting here in a recession right now or not. Um, it's very hard to measure economic activity um, in a country with an economy as complex as, as Britain or the United States. And as our models get more complex, the economy becomes more complex too. Um, and the U.S. has just decided that we were missing about 3% of our economy, that we had generated a lot of um, intangible property that wasn't being measured properly. So we just became hundreds of billions of dollars richer based on accounting treatment, right? So, um, you know, the basic problem is, is garbage in, garbage out. If you don't have very good inputs, then there's no way you can manipulate them to get, um, to get highly competent, highly accurate predictions. Yeah, I would. Does anyone care what I think about it? I'm just an economist. Um, there's actually, Lady um, mentioned there was lots and lots of data. Actually, there isn't a lot of macroeconomic data. Um, there's a lot of microeconomic data coming, and this is a, a sharp change. It's all quite recent. Um, macroeconomic data is, is less than 100 years old. One of the problems Reinhardt and Rogoff had, one of several problems they had, was um, they were just trying to put together a data set for just 20 countries and get data going back to 1945. And they have had to build this data set by hand because it didn't exist. Um, so it, it's a hard problem. Also, academic macroeconomists don't take the forecasting problem seriously. They don't think that it's something they should get their hands dirty with. So they, they leave that to investment bankers. So um, and there's one more thing, which is something called the Lucas critique, which um, you you make a forecast of some empirical relationship, you change policy as a result, and, there, and then, of course, everybody changes in response to the policy change, and the empirical relationship breaks down. This was kind of a, a kind of blow to the kneecaps of the macroeconomics profession back in the 1970s, and we still haven't really 
recovered. So stick to microeconomics, kids. It's a, it's a lot more fun. Um, so we had a question about, which I think is related, we've sort of answered, but a question about what's going to happen in the EU, what's going to happen uh, to the single currency, um, and advice for the Democrats in 2014. Um, so for the Democrats, uh, uh, you know, it's going to be very difficult for the Democrats to win back the House in 2014 um, based on what is a pretty robust historical relationship, which is that the president's party usually does poorly in midterm years. Um, that plus the fact that uh, that um, seats in the U.S. now are extremely um, gerrymandered, both intentionally and because of, of self-sorting, where my neighborhood in New York, it's something like 91% of people voted for, for Barack Obama there. Um, that means you kind of drain Democrats out from the swing districts because the extreme concentration of them means that the Democratic congresswoman in my district has no chance whatsoever of losing to a Republican. So, um, so there are not very many swing seats. And combined with the fact that it's hard for a party to gain ground in a midterm year when it owns the presidency, I think that you know the Democrats might have a, a, a one in eight chance or a one in 10 chance of regaining the House. Most of the GOP does something uh, really, really stupid, like has a big scandal or tries to um, blow up the economy with a debt ceiling crisis or something like that. Um, but in the status quo, um, their, their House majority of the GOP should be pretty safe, I think. The Senate is more individual seats, more up in the air. I think Democrats are, are probably uh, modest favorites to hold on to the Senate, in part because the GOP has a lot of seats to contend for, but they are nominating some, some bad candidates, as they did in the past two years in these Senate races. But um, So the most likely case, you'd still have a, a split. But the GOP has more chance of winning the Senate than Democrats taking over the House. Thank you. Um, any any questions from the gallery? Uh, yeah. So, can you just come forward to the to the microphone? Can, is that possible? I can't really see how it's all arranged there. There's a microphone right in the middle. Can you can you get to it? Excellent. Anybody else up in the gallery want to get to the mic? Would you like to go to the microphone as well? We'll take two questions. Thanks. Just stand in front of it. If that's that's okay. Thanks. Yes. If. Um... Small data is the, the big data, so to speak. Um, I thought an interesting question would be, how could you give some advice to, to the crowd on um, the use and, of science in prediction in people's everyday lives? You know, if there was a way to kind of offer some kind of um, <laughs> sort of basic level of advice on how to use prediction in everyday life that you think has a positive outcome, I'd be interested to hear it. Thank you. And uh, lady behind? Hi, uh, there's a lot of talk in the market about how there aren't enough people um, with the right types of skills to work in this space. Um, and this week, I think RPI University in the US paired with IBM to create a special big data analytics sort of master's degree program. I'd be interested in your view about the skills um, of people, uh, you know, the skills people need basically to operate in this field. And is a new education program required or does tra traditional education sufficient? Terrific. Thank you very much. So should we be changing education to create more statisticians? And should kids today be learning statistics? Is it, is it sort of the, the rock star field of the future? Uh, and how can we use numbers and statistics to make our everyday lives better? Um, well, I think part of the problem, I'll take the last question first. Um, I think part of the problem is that we apply uh, approximations or heuristics, the fancy term, in our everyday lives to complex problems, and they don't do nearly as well, right? Um, you know, you might, it might be worth it to uh, put a spreadsheet together 
um, for 45 minutes to figure out which kebab shop you should eat at tonight, but, but probably, probably not really, right? Um, but for high-stakes decisions, we have more complexity. That's where you, you would have to do what I think Daniel Kahneman calls thinking slow, where your intuitions often fail, where your probabilistic estimates in particular are often, are often quite poor. You know, I have a friend who, um, who actually will like, kind of take 40 minutes to decide what to eat, but then he's trying to get a new job, and like you send out any resume this week, he's like, yeah, you know, puts no effort in whatsoever to this very, very consequential thing in his life. And a lot of us, I think, are, are like that. So, um, you know, I mean, I think in general, it can't hurt to be more used to thinking in terms of probabilities, but, but our, our everyday decisions are usually pretty good. It's the big societal decisions that we tend to screw up upon. Um, um, so in terms of um, uh, do we need a better math and science education, I think absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, the math and science courses that are taught in the U.S. are taught in very strange ways a lot of the time, where um, there's a lot of, of theory and not a lot of application necessarily. If you're going into engineering, then it's really valuable to learn calculus, but probably not otherwise. To learn um, proofs is something which uh, maybe helps train your brain a little bit, but probably not as bad as learning how to actually apply statistics and work your way through problems in a more organic sense. Um, I, I went to the, uh, the TED Talks in the US this year. They had a guy there who uh, won the TED Prize and is working with self-sustaining classrooms in, in India, um, where you might not have a lot of qualified teachers, where you have to teach a large number of students with relatively little, little intervention. What he found is that when you give students a problem to solve, so one example he gave, uh, he would tell students, hey, um, did you hear about that asteroid that almost hit the Earth? Um, well, how did scientists know that we would be safe? How do they measure that and predict that? And that involves the kids having to learn a little bit about astronomy and trigonometry and so forth, and that motivated them a lot more than trying to learn um, a bunch of theories in a book. So um, teaching, uh, teaching the language of math in the same way that the English language is taught through, through literature and through more hands-on examples, I think that would be very useful to do. But yeah, there is, there is a shortage of the skill set, I think, and it was one of the few professions that grew during the recession with statisticians in, in the US. Or, or, of course, you can buy a good book. And, uh, or just buy the book. Yeah, there's, and, and we've covered a lot of ground this evening. There's a tremendous amount in the book uh, that Nate hasn't had a chance to get to. Um, we're going up to the bar. Nate will be signing books. If the queue to get Nate to sign your book is too long, you can always get me to sign a book. Uh, <laughs> happy to do that. Um, Please forgive us, we're going to make a sharp exit and go up to the bar. But before we do that, please join me in thanking Nate Silver. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared debates, talks and discussions free on iTunes. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared, We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. 
Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.